Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Happy New Year. How are you? All right, let's get to it. Colossians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones in the, uh, the seat rack in front of you. If you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find Colossians chapter 1 in, in those Bibles in front of you, either on page 772 or, or 983. And, and as we say every Sunday, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that as a gift from us to you. Did you notice who was playing the drums this morning? For those of you that have been around Crosspoint for a while, Stephen and Sarah Beth Sheely are back in town just for the holidays to visit, uh, all the way down from cold, snowy Minnesota. And I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, Minnesota, or Minnesota, I don't know how to do those vowels when you're from Scandinavia. But we are really, uh, really glad to see you guys, and, um, and so give Stephen and Sarah Beth a, a hug after service. Well, listen, uh, we find ourselves in one of these little Sundays where I think it would be helpful for us to just do a standalone sort of message. And so these past few days, I have been, as part of a plan for 2015, a plan for me personally in the scriptures, to read through just books of the Bible over and over and over again, about 20 times, and then move on. And so the first book that I chose for this upcoming year, and I got a little head start on it, is Colossians. And so over these past few days, I have read Colossians over and over and over again. And this prayer that Paul offers for the church at Colossae has just been sort of resonating in my heart. And I want it to be a prayer for us this year as we enter into a new year. And so I have seven prayers for Crosspoint that I want to offer through the first 14 verses of Colossians. But before I do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us center our hearts and to uh, dig into this word and to, to profit from our time together. So let me pray. Oh Lord, as we, as we open up your word and as we look at Paul's words to the church at Colossae and as we think about his prayer for them, I pray that you would help it to take shape in our hearts and that it would be our prayer for one another that, that you would use these these divine inspired words that are from you through a man written by the Holy Spirit to us that you would use them to encourage your church that for the believers in this room that we would be strengthened and spurred on that our hearts would be softened towards one another and that they would deepen in gratitude towards you and I pray for any friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, that you, by your kind and sovereign grace, would give them a heart to believe and eyes to see and ears to hear in Christ, that they would trust in him. And I pray that you'd do these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start reading in Colossians chapter 1, and we're just going to stop along the way, and I have seven prayers out of this short text, these first 14 verses, that, that I'm praying for us as a church. Now, this will be our 10th year, April 17th, 2005, 
we started Crosspoint as just a small little group of people meeting together as a core group and then had our first public service on April 17th, 10 years ago, 2005. And what the Lord has done in these past 10 years, really in spite of, of pastoral leadership, just because of his kind grace, has been, has been deeply encouraging and beautiful. And as I reflect back and I think about this upcoming year, these are my prayers for us as a church. So let's, let's, uh, let's start reading in Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So I want us to stop there, and here's my first prayer for Crosspoint in 2015. That our future hope in the gospel would produce even more present love for one another. Notice Paul's reasoning there and his logic in verse 4. He's thanking God for the Colossian church, for the church at Colossae. And he says that when I think of you and when I pray for you, my heart is stirred with love for you and that I hear about your faith. And here's what he says about their faith, that it has produced in them a love for all of the saints. So there is this, there is this love in the body at the church at Colossae. And here's why there was love. Here's this reasoning that we we just don't expect. You know, you might expect them to say, because you had good unity and you all got along and there wasn't any strange people in your church that drove you crazy. You know, it was just a really cohesive group. No, that's not what he says. He says that you had love for one another, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So think about that logic. Paul is saying that future confidence in the hope of eternity produces this present love for one another. Think about just the beauty of being a church that is is so confident in the future that it would allow us to really unclench our, our grip from this present world so that we can actually finally be of use in this present world. They were so confident about what they were, where they were going, what their inheritance would be, that it actually allowed them to love one another more and to be more thankful for each other. Just think about what that would look like in our church, that we are people that are so confident in our future that it actually makes us of more earthly present good. Let's keep reading halfway through verse, verse 5 there. Of this you have heard before. In the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So here's my my second prayer from Crosspoint, from Paul's prayer to the Colossians, is that we would be gospel-fueled optimists. Where do I get that from? Look again. At verse 6, he says that the gospel's come to you, that you've heard it. And then he, he, it's like he, he, he zeroed in on the Colossians and the effect of the gospel 
in them, and he's going to talk about that in a second, but he can't help but then realize that in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. He has this optimistic view of the work of God in the church at Colossae and really in the whole world. And I pray that, that, that as a pastor, that, that we as a congregation would just be people that aren't sort of, you know, detached from reality. There's nothing worse than somebody who just doesn't seem like they're, you know, that they have their feet on the ground and they almost become sort of annoying in their sort of detached from reality optimism. You know what I'm talking about? It's just everything's great and you just want to like, no, it's not. I want to punch you in the face. It's not great. But there's something incredibly stabilizing and encouraging about people who aren't detached from reality and can look around a broken world and can look around an incomplete situation and a a situation that still has much work to be done, a church that's very imperfect, their own life that's very imperfect, other people around them who are very imperfect, and yet are so confident in the grace of God and the certainty of God's promise to His people and to His church that they can have their feet solidly on the ground, very in touch with a broken reality around them. But despite that, Look at it all with an unflinching confidence and optimism that says that God who has begun a good work in us will, in fact, he's guaranteed that he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And can look at the world around them and the people around them and look inside them own, their own selves and their own still in progress hearts and be optimistic about the work of God in the world and the certainty of God's victory. I find those type of people to be incredibly attractive, and I just want to be around them. Gospel-fueled optimists. And my prayer is that, that I would be more like that, and that we as a church would be more like that. I, I think, though, as we think about what this looks like in our lives, is that there are two forces that really constantly work against this. And I think it sort of runs across generational lines. I think for younger Christians... Uh, we have grown up, I'm, I'm sort of including myself in that group, I guess, although I will be 44 in January, which I'm kind of excited about because 44 is my favorite number in all of the world. It was my older brother's number when he played football, and I idolized him, so I just, that's kind of the way I work. I just think I put everything in football numbers, and he was number 44. And he actually led me to the Lord, so that's a sentimental number for me. I just think it's a cool number. I'm looking forward to being 44. But I still kind of want to hold on to the youngness. In fact, I am getting old. Um, I, I Probably some Sunday coming to you in 2015, I'm going to have to break out reading glasses when I'm sitting at my home. Just this week, I started to use reading glasses. All of my children mocked me and made fun of me. Still dealing with that a little bit before I can actually go public with it. Thank you, Reynolds, who has his reading glasses propped on his head right now, is giving me a hearty amen. But I think that a younger generation... Two forces that work against gospel-fueled optimism are a sort of pervasive cynicism and sarcasm. I think it's the way the younger generations deal with insecurity. That if they can just sort of be cynical and sarcastic about everything and not take anything serious, then it protects them from really being exposed from their own inadequacy. I also think that younger people have grown up in an age, in a digital age, they've grown up on TV shows like 
Now, don't get mad at me and send me any emails if this is your favorite show, but we're just, I'm just being pastoral here. They've grown up on TV shows like Seinfeld and The Office, and the, the, the comedy may be funny, but when that is the constant drum of all that you're hearing is just like sharp, sarcastic, cynical humor, it begins to, begins to form a worldview in your heart, doesn't it? And when the only news that you really, uh, that you really watch is Jon Stewart's Daily Show, which you realize that's not real news, <laughs> you guys know that, right? But if that's all you watch, it, it starts to form a heart. You know, in Romans, it says that faith comes by hearing. And then Paul goes on to say, by hearing the word of God. But I think the principle works both ways. We, we, we grow in faith about what we hear. If you expose yourself to the Bible and truth, you're going to grow in faith of good things that are good and true and noble and pure and from God. And if you just expose your heart, if we expose our hearts to just cynicism and sarcasm in our culture, uh, it begins to produce a lack of faith in us. And I think younger Christians are particularly prone to that. I think I'm, I'm prone to that. Just a, a general, almost subconscious, rolling of the eyes, sarcastic cynicism. Oh, I, would, I would challenge that this, this year. If, if, I just pray that we would challenge that, that particularly men in this church, that men in this church in their conversations with one another would fight against sarcasm and cynicism. I'm not talking about just good, fun humor, but that we would push against that, that tone that just seems to pervade conversations in our culture. I think that's the, the force that's at work on younger Christians. I, I think a force that's at work maybe on older generations that would fight against gospel-fueled optimism is a pervasive pessimism. And I think that older Christians are prone to pessimism because they have had an unrealistic view of what culture and church should be like. And they kind of want an American Norman Rockwell painting, the church to look like that. And when they realize that the world is evil and now we're exposed to all of these things and it, it sort of it, it disheartens them and disenfranchises them from reality. And they become, they become pessimistic. They're pessimistic about the state of the world. Pessimistic about the state of our culture. Pessimistic about the state of the church. Pessimistic about the state of younger Christians and their growth and sanctification. And certainly there's some legitimate concerns in every generation of every age. But I think that older people, again, I think because of insecurity and fear, there's a play on every generation, tend to gravitate towards a pessimism because things aren't the way they used to be when they grew up. And that becomes a real enemy of gospel-fueled optimism. Now, if you're like me, you got a little bit of both. <laughs> you, you suffer. I'm like right in the middle of 44 between kind of older and younger. I have to battle against cynicism and sarcasm and pessimism. I'm like a walking blah. And I need the gospel afresh to remind me, friends, of these truths of the scriptures that God has promised that his church will prevail and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Think about even just that imagery of the gates of hell. The gates 
you're behind a gate when you're on the defense. We tend to think of hell sort of encroaching on the church, but, but we're not getting attacked with a fence. No, no, heaven, the kingdom, the work of God is increasing, bearing fruit, as Paul says, all throughout the world, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the advance of the gospel and the certain, sovereign, promised work of God. Friends, there is no soul, there's no person, there's no thing that will be lost because God lost in a battle to the enemy outside of God's providence. And this should produce in us as a church a gospel-fueled optimism. Oh, I pray that would be true of my heart and your heart and our heart collectively in this upcoming year. Let's keep going. Verse 7, he says of this gospel, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. My prayer number three would be that we would increase in gratitude for those who serve us in Christ. And Friends, this is not some sort of subconscious, self-serving little thing like, bless your pastors, you know. It's not, it's not what I'm saying here. Although, certainly that may be part of it. But that we would just have this deep gratitude for those who brought the gospel to us. Do you realize you're just not here by accident? That somebody, maybe it was a parent, or maybe it was a friend, in my case it was an older brother, that they heard the gospel and responded to it. And then they were on mission, and they brought the gospel to you. And the gospel does not advance unless people share the gospel with us. And the gospel doesn't grow in our hearts unless God uses the means of a community of people who are there to serve one another and to love one another. I mean, even as we speak, maybe on a, on a not, not as many numbers on a Sunday like this, but on any given Sunday, there's 200 children here in this church, and there's 40 to 50 adult volunteers that are pouring their heart out, sometimes frustrated, sometimes, you know, it's not the most exciting work to do, but caring for our children, sharing the gospel with them, youth, Sunday nights, there's, there's people in Will's leadership team that are pouring out their hearts, there's community group leaders who are imperfectly, but yet still pouring out their hearts, there's people teaching Bible studies, there's pastors preaching, there's, there's older Christians encouraging younger Christians, and we, friends, we would do well to remember the Epaphrases in our life, those that, that labor for us. Listen, in fact, to what it says about, don't, we don't have it on the screen, but if you have your Bible open to Colossians, you can just flip over to the end of Colossians, where Paul, as a postscript, says some things about Epaphras in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Epaphras, the same one who brought the gospel to them, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. And listen to the heart that Epaphras has for his church. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Oh, that this church would be filled with people with an Epaphras-like heart for one another and that we would notice them and express gratitude for the work of God in them that comes through them to us for our good and our benefit. Ah, praise God. Pray that we would increase in gratitude for those who serve us in Christ. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 9, back to Colossians 1. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this leads me to prayer number four for Crosspoint in 2015. And it is that we would intentionally pursue spiritual growth and Christ-likeness. That we would intentionally pursue spiritual growth and Christ-likeness. Look at Paul's prayer there again. He asks in verse 9 that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That doesn't just happen by accident. When I was a kid, this was before I was a Christian, I was just some kind of strange, superstitious little child that just believed that I would. I had this Bible and I laid it underneath my pillow. Never opened it, never read it, but I just laid it underneath my pillow as a kind of like good luck charm, like a little rabbit's foot. I think part of it was that my brother used to tell me scary stories uh, late at night that totally psyched me out. And so I was trying to counter that, you know, mumbo jumbo that he was trying to put on me. And I would put this Bible underneath my, my pillow at night for years and years and years. Never read it. Just hoping that it would kind of do me some good. It doesn't work that way, friends. We have to be intentional in our pursuit. And as Paul prays, that they be filled with the knowledge of his will There is implicit in this an earnestness that we must have as Christians, that we would intentionally pursue spiritual growth. I find in my own heart that people that tend to be very doctrinally driven, and I would think that this church probably falls into that category, people that have a very high view of God's grace and God's sovereignty and salvation, tend to be prone to, to not understand the weight then of the imperatives and the commands of the scripture after you become a Christian. Because we're scared that if we read verses like in Philippians where it says, strive to know God better, that, we, that, that all of a sudden we're going to be, you know, works-based righteousness. You know, no, no, we believe in the, the free grace of God and nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save ourselves. And, and the moment we... We even think about how the Bible commands us and calls us to, to do these things. We, we feel like we're, we're becoming all of a sudden legalists. And I think when we, when we fall into that trap, we, we show that we don't really understand the, the role of the imperative, the commands of Scripture to strive in growth in Christ-likeness, not so that God would accept us, but that because God has made us new and given us a new heart and put his spirit in us and accepted us by grace alone, now we can grow in Christ-likeness. So here's my question about pursuing spiritual growth in Christ-likeness in 2015. You've got a couple days yet to think about these things. Do you have a plan for 2015? Whatever it is. Do you have a plan? Have you thought about Can I encourage you to take these next few days before the end of this year to take a sort of spiritual inventory of your life and to think about what your plan might be for this upcoming year. On the back table and in the resource room, I put these guides uh, called 10 Questions to Ask Yourself at the Start of a New Year or on Your Birthday. Now, in just a moment, we're going to throw them up on the screen. Don't do it just yet. 
Don't worry about writing them down because we've got these 10 questions written down for a little sheet of paper that you can take if you want as a sort of spiritual inventory. They're done by a professor and theologian named Don Whitney who's written a very helpful book called The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, uh, which we are going to use as a, as a sort of text to go through for our men's and women's lunches in this upcoming year. So there's 12 chapters in that book. We're going to have a bunch of them in the Resource Center here in a week or so. And we're going to use each chapter as a, a, an each spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline is like Bible reading, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving. And we're going to use each chapter as a focus for that month and have whoever is teaching on that particular month in the men's and women's lunch to sort of look at that topic and encourage people that come to the lunch along the lines of that spiritual discipline. But here is, here is 10 questions, and actually he asked 31, but we'll just do 10. And I'm just going to read through them real quick. Don't worry about writing them down. It's a long list. You have this little sheet on the back, back table if you want to take one and use this as just a sort of inventory for this upcoming year. 10 questions to ask yourself at the start of a new year. What's one thing you could do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? Two, what's the most humanly impossible thing you will ask God to do this year? When I read that, I was a bit convicted. I don't know that I even asked God to do anything that was humanly impossible last year. I mean, what what I think he's getting at is let's, let's stir faith to ask God for big things because he's a big God who loves to answer big prayers because he gets big glory out of answering big prayers. Three, what's the single most important thing you could do to improve the quality of your family life this year? It's getting a little quiet in here and convicting, so we'll just go on to chapter or verse four or <laughs> number four. In which spiritual discipline do you most want to make progress this year, and what will you do about it? Again, spiritual disciplines, things like Bible reading, prayer, evangelism, serving, stewardship, silence, solitude, fasting. We're going to work through those spiritual disciplines again, as I said in this book, in our men's and women lunches, men's and women's luncheon in 2015. Number five. What is the single biggest time waster in your life? And what will you do about it this year? I think for a lot of us, we could probably say social media. So what are you going to do? Is 2015 going to be another year of wasting mindless hours on Facebook? Or will you, by God's grace, let that be a tool by which you use to be encouraged and encourage others and limit it and use some of that time for God's glory in your own soul. And friends, this is not me, you know, chastising the children now. Come on, boys and girls, do better and report back to Brad when you have an answer. (laughs) This is me talking to myself. Number six, what's the most helpful new way you could strengthen your church? Seven, for whose salvation will you pray most fervently this year? Do we realize all those people that we come in contact with? The barista at Starbucks, the clerk at the store that we check out at, that we have a, you know, a casual greeting relationship with, may not know Jesus. And do we realize that if they do not know Jesus, they don't just float off into fairyland for people that are basically good. There are only two types of people in this world those that are in Christ and those that are outside of Christ. 
And many of people that we judge as basically morally good are outside of Christ. And the Bible is clear and unequivocal on this, friends. That after every person dies, there will be a judgment. And on that day, our view and perception of moral goodness will be burned up as rubble. And only those that are in Christ will be with him for eternity forever. And those that are outside of Christ will receive their due and just eternal punishment. So whose salvation will we pray for most fervently this year? Eight, what's the most important way you will by God's grace? Try to make this year different from last year. Nine, what one thing could you do to improve your prayer life this year? Ten, what single thing that you plan to do this year will matter most in ten years in eternity? Well, there's 21 more questions I won't go into, but I encourage you to take this and to do an inventory in your soul, maybe in your family. I think we'll do this. I haven't talked to Jennifer about this, but we're having a family meeting right now in front of several hundred of our closest friends. I think we'll take this and write out our answers and compare them with one another on, before the end of the year on, on New Year's Eve. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan to take in God's Word? We have Bible reading plans on, in the Resource Center. I encourage you to take one. And don't let that Bible reading plan become a law or a guilt-producing club that beats you over the head when you fall behind. No. Don't be a servant of the Bible reading plan. Make the plan a servant of yours. And when you're behind, you're behind. Welcome to the world of sanctification. And just check off the next block. I don't care that it's March and I'm still in January. That's just the way it is. Put that in your pipe and smoke it Bible reading plan. That's the way I work it. I encourage you to do the same. Well, we could go on and on. It's starting to get a little hot in here. And here's a fifth prayer that I think comes out of these same verses. So four is that we would intentionally pursue spiritual growth in Christ's likeness. And then five, that in this pursuit, we would please the Lord and actually bear fruit. So the point of spiritual wisdom and knowledge and Bible knowledge and lists or whatever, however your personality works it out, the point of spiritual growth is not that we would have all of this Bible knowledge that we just stuff into our hearts, but that then this knowledge and Christ's likeness would produce in us a life that is worthy to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that we would please Him and that we would actually bear fruit. So, so what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, in Galatians 5, verse 20 through 23, Paul gives us an explanation, a little bit of what spiritual fruit is. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And So let's even look at it. Let's even break it apart even more and say that just a few thoughts about what does it mean to bear fruit, to read the Bible, to commune with God's people, to pray more, to be more diligent in our Christ-like pursuit of Knowing God, what then does it mean? What effect should this have? All these roots that I'm trying to put in the ground, what fruit should they bear? I think that 
Spiritual fruit is as simple as increasing in our love for God and His Word and a desire to obey Him over and against this world that desires to drag us away from Him. I think to bear fruit means that we would have increasing victory over sin. Of course, in this life, we will never completely eradicate sin. But we, I think, as Christians, growing in grace, should expect increasing victory over sin, including those that have previously dominated us. So so are we okay with sort of still just a mediocre sanctification that maybe has marked our life up to this point? If you're a man that's struggling with some particular besetting sin, are you just okay with that defining and neutralizing your life for this upcoming year? And if not, what are you going to do about it? The mark of a true Christian is that they will, over the course of time, increase in their ability to take God's side against their sin. I pray that that would be true in my heart and in our hearts collectively as a people. Another fruit of growing in spiritual knowledge of God and Christ-likeness is a greater love for the church and other believers and a desire to serve and encourage them. Maybe you've been coming to Crosspoint and nobody really knows your name and you're kind of on the edge. I'd encourage you to, to be known, to go through the membership process, to submit your life to the authority of other people that then have the right to care for you. Of course, they're not going to do it perfectly. And you will always be failed by other Christians just as you will always fail other Christians. But to grow in Christ-likeness means that we have this pervasive humility and grace for one another when we do fail each other and we love each other despite it. And in fact, our love for one another grows. Ah, friends, that's a beautiful aroma to an onlooking world as we grow in that grace. Another spiritual fruit would be that we would grow in love for and grace for unbelievers and those outside the church, that our hearts would break for the seemingly good moral people who are outside of Christ that we come in contact with every day. And, of course, the people that are just rebellious, obviously, against God, that, are, that we wouldn't rise up in judgment against them or be antagonistic towards them, but that our hearts would break for them. And I see so much of that going on. I mean, there's people in this church who have a love for downtrodden people, just have a love for evangelism, people inviting people to church, studying the Bible with them. We've got guys in this church who go to the prison regularly on Sundays and minister to people. There's just all sorts of beautiful things going on that, that, are just, that are just all over in the church, and I'm so encouraged. So friends, this is not me saying, we need to do this better. This is just, oh, let this develop even more in my heart. Let there be more and more of this in our life, that we would be people that actually bear fruit and are not marked what I think is the tenor of much of the American church is just a sort of complacency. Like, we're just okay, you know, we're Christians, it's the South, this is what we do. I mean, for us, Christianity a lot of times is like no more important than just sort of like the college football team that we root for. It's just sort of part of who we are. Ah, friends, may, may may we not be that type of Christian, if that's Christianity at all, and I really don't think it is. May we, may we have this pursuit that would result in fruit. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So prayer number six is that we would deepen in endurance, patience, and joy that is not of this world. Let me read 11 and 12 again. Paul prays for them that they would be strengthened with all power. That's from God and his gospel and his Holy Spirit that comes according to his glorious might. Why does they need the strength? For all endurance and patience with joy. Because the rest of the life here on this earth as a Christian will be difficult. So he prays that they would have endurance and and patience and joy that is not of this world. And that in that endurance and patience and joy, they would give thanks to the Father who's qualified them not to share in the American dream or 60 comfortable years after you become a Christian, but to share in the inheritance of the saints in in light. In other words, the life that is to come because we know that our inheritance is not this life, but the next, that we would be deepened in our endurance and patience and joy in this life. So we would be people that are not shocked by a broken world around us that feel like the... I think a lot of times Christians are prone to being like chicken littles, you know. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. You know what? The sky has been falling since Genesis 3. The world is a broken place. God is in control. The American church has got a lot of problems. This church has a lot of problems. You got a lot of problems. I got a lot of problems. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And there's this abiding confidence and endurance that comes when we see that, that gospel-fueled optimism, and it deepens our endurance. And then finally, 13 and 14, some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So my seventh and final prayer for my heart and our hearts collectively as a church in this upcoming year is that we would cherish and love and understand the gospel more. Listen to how Paul describes the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to reconcile a people to himself. He doesn't say that he's given a new way to live that if they will follow, it will improve their lot in this life. It doesn't say that, you know, he has kind of met them halfway. If they will meet him halfway, then he will meet them with a wonderful plan for the rest of their life. No, listen to how he describes the gospel. He has delivered us. We were enslaved by our sin, lost, dead in our trespasses and sins. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This was a a jailbreak. This was a, a raid on 
prison and he broke us out of prison, transferred us, made us a citizen of his kingdom, adopted us as his child, and he's given us, verse 14, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And when we stare at that verse, it should cause us to deepen in our love for and understanding of the gospelness of the gospel and our gratefulness for it. And it should propel us to love one another and others more deeply. Oh, that our future hope in the gospel would produce more love for one another. Oh, that we would be gospel-fueled optimists. That we would increase in gratitude for those who serve us in Christ that we would roll up our sleeves and intentionally pursue spiritual growth in Christ. And that that growth wouldn't dead end on us, but that we would please the Lord and bear fruit. And that we would deepen in endurance and patience and joy in this broken world, knowing that God is sovereign and has promised us an inheritance in the world to come. And then as we stare at the beauty of the gospel week after week and day after day as we interact with one another and read the Bible, that we cherish and love and understand the gospel more. And that God does beautiful, eternal, gracious things through us in this upcoming year for his glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Oh, Father, as we respond to these words and wrestle with Paul's prayer, I pray that unbelievers in this room, by your kind grace, would would see Jesus, that you'd give them a new heart, that the things that we've spoken about, sung about, read about, preached about, would be used as your means to open up their eyes to see Jesus and that they would turn from trusting in themselves and trust in Jesus even now. Friend, if that's you, you don't need to recite anything or memorize anything or do anything but look away from yourself and your own righteousness and your own right standing and you need to look at Christ, the one who bore God's wrath on the cross for you, for all those that would believe. You need to turn away from self-trust and disobedience and turn in faith to Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and his victorious resurrection. Put your hope in him and be saved. That's what it means to be in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do that for anybody in this room who's not a believer. And for the rest of us, God, dig the trench, dig the footing of your grace and joy and humility and confidence deeper in our lives. For the glory of your name and for the good of our souls, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.